Matthew chapter 15, the title of this sermon is When Mercy is Early. When Mercy is Early, a vain attempt at rhyming there. Matthew 15, we're looking at verses 21 through 28. I will be reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. Let's read together Matthew 15, starting in verse 21. It says, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. Jesus replied, it's not right to take the children's bread, toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would shepherd us this morning in your word. You again, Christ, are our shepherd. With your rod and your staff, you comfort us. You lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake. You make us lie down in green pastures and you take us to still waters. You prepare a banqueting table for us in the presence of our enemies. And our cup, it overflows. And we say together, as your church, surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. So shepherd us this morning, Christ, in your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, whom you said is a teacher of all things. Teach us, Lord, to understand, to comprehend, to rejoice in, and to obey your word this morning. Help us to find hope in our hopeless places. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Please help me teach and preach in a way that is faithful to the Bible and helpful to the church and brings glory to Jesus. We ask it together in that name. Amen. Amen. Well, this text marks a turning point in the ministry of Jesus and and a, a rather profound one. And it starts off merely geographically. Jesus leaves the region of the Sea of Galilee where the vast majority of his ministry takes place, where we've seen him for the entirety of the book of Matthew thus far. And he travels north and west a little bit to the area of Tyre and Sidon. We have a map here to help you visualize it a little bit. This is a satellite picture of Israel. The big blue dot in the middle is the Sea of Galilee where Jesus has been doing his ministry. At the top of the Sea of Galilee there, you see Capernaum. To orient us a little bit, just up from the Sea of Galilee and left is the Israel border with Lebanon. We're talking modern borders now. So along the coast on the upper left there is Lebanon. 
To the right is Syria, which you hear about in the news every day right now. So these are real places and real things. Jesus leaves Capernaum there, and he heads up to Tyre. You see that red line going up, the area of Tyre and Sidon in modern-day Lebanon. Next week, he'll leave there and go down to the area of Decapolis to the right of the Sea of Galilee. That's the green or the blue line. I can't tell what it is coming down on the right-hand side. So Jesus takes his journey, and it's about 25 miles to these cities. Now, these cities are infamous in biblical history. Throughout the Old Testament, we see a multitude of references to Tyre and Sidon, and it's always in the context of them being condemned for both their idol worship, namely their worship of Baal we see in the Old Testament, and their arrogant pride and power and wealth. This is biblically and historically and was currently at the time of our text, a place of idol worship, a a stronghold of the rejection of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel, our God. And it was a symbol for godless wealth and power and arrogance. They were so much a standard in the mind of the people for godlessness and wickedness that Jesus used them as sort of a comparison for cities that were in a lot of trouble. You might remember this from Matthew 11. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For the miracles that had been performed, that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. So Jesus holds this region and the people there and the cities up as kind of the standard of wickedness for which other wickedness in the land would be judged. And so the significance of him leaving Galilee with his disciples and making this 25-mile journey, the significance of that would not be lost on the disciples. Something profound is going on here. Their master is taking them to a hard, cold Godless place. The local heart of Gentile opposition to Yahweh. And no sooner are they there than they encounter this Canaanite woman. She's a Canaanite. You remember the Canaanites. Their culture goes back 3,000 years before Christ. They were the ones who inhabited the land of Israel before Israel did. You'll remember it was the land of Canaan. It became the promised land, and it would become the land of Israel. And again, the Canaanites were famous in that land for their evil and their idolatry. That's why when the land was taken by Joshua and the rest of Israel, they were told to deal with the Canaanites thoroughly and their evil and their idolatry, lest they be polluted by the sin that was there. This woman is a Canaanite. But interestingly, she uses the Jewish messianic title for Jesus. She cries out to him, son of David. That's grounding his identity profoundly in the history of Israel, which she wasn't really a part of other than being seen as the wicked enemy. But she knows something that the residents of Tyre and Sidon probably didn't know. She says, Jesus, son of David. Son of King David, the messianic promise title, have mercy on me. 
And it says that she's crying out repeatedly. This is a desperate woman. Of course she was desperate. Her daughter was suffering, suffering terribly at the hands of evil. She was a desperate mother with a daughter in a desperate situation. And she's desperately crying out to Jesus. And from what we know about Jesus in the Gospels thus far, it would seem as though this were a perfect scenario. Here's a mother in need, a child who is suffering, and Jesus shows up on the scene. Surely this has got to be good. But then we're told in our text, in verse 23, that Jesus didn't say a word. She's crying out for mercy, and Jesus doesn't respond in any way whatsoever. And then the disciples urge Jesus to just answer the woman's request and send her away. It's obvious that that's what they were asking when he responds in verse 24. I, went, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. They were clearly saying to Jesus, listen, Jesus, just do what she wants, her to, what she wants you to do and then send her away. Jesus doesn't say anything. Even the disciples are like, can, can, can we do something for this poor woman? And let her go home to her daughter. And Jesus' response seems cold and distant. It sounds cruel. He says in response to not only the pleas of the Canaanite woman, the mother, but also of the disciples in verse 24 again, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now perhaps there's something for the woman, the disciples, and us to learn from that. What is Jesus saying in this statement? It's interesting that Jesus in his ministry, though he was meant to be understood as the savior of the world, never went to any of the important places of the ancient world other than Jerusalem. He never visited Athens, Greece. He never went to Rome. He never went to Alexandria, that center of culture in Egypt. He never went to any of those big, important places in the world where one might expect someone who claimed to be the savior of the world and the world leader one day to go. What we see, surprisingly, perhaps not surprisingly, if we read the Bible long enough, is that God's mission unfolds in peculiar ways. God's mission unfolds in peculiar ways. And this is a peculiar instance that's before us. It goes all the way back to the promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. This is the Abrahamic covenant. You'll remember this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your father's country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land I will show you. That's the land of Canaan. And I will make you a great nation. That's the nation of Israel. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who curse you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. God's covenant relationship with Israel. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this is where God's mission begins to clearly unfold in the Bible way back in Genesis 12. God says, I am through a man going to establish a nation for myself that I will have a peculiar covenant relationship with. 
and I'll work through that nation. And through that nation, I will not only bless them, the Israelites, but the whole world will be blessed through them. So God's mission would be to the whole world, but it would unfold in a particular way through a man, Abraham, through a nation, Israel. And that's how we see it unfolding in the Gospels. When Jesus was born, it was said this about him. She will bear a son or before he is born and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. His people meaning Israel there. So we're still in the first part of the unfolding of that mission. His people, Israel, he will save them from his sins. But just after Jesus is born, we see the expected biblical expansion of the scope of that mission in this. Jesus was called shortly after his birth, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, that is non-Jews, not Israel, and the glory of your people Israel. So that reflects the Abrahamic covenant that God would work through a particular person and a particular nation, but it would eventually go to all the nations. Romans chapter 15 lays this out explicitly. Paul writes and says, Remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises he made to their ancestors. He also came so that the Gentiles might give glory to God for his mercies to them. That is what the psalmist meant when he wrote, For this I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. And in another place it is written, Rejoice with his people, you Gentiles. And yet again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Praise him, all you people of the earth. And in another place, Isaiah said, the heir to David's throne will come and he will rule over the Gentiles. They will place their hope on him. So you see the way that God's mission unfolds in the world through Israel, but for the whole world. And that salvation was meant to go first to the Jews, and then to the Gentiles, everyone other than the Jews. And this is the way that we see it unfolding in the Gospels. This is what God intended to do. This is part of the plan. And Jesus is sticking to the plan. So much so that when he sends his disciples out on a little practice mission, he tells them this in Matthew 10. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. And do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Specific instructions he gave them. Go on a mission, announcing the good news, but go only to Israel. Now later on, he would again stick to the script when he expands it to the whole world. Right after his death and his resurrection, he would give the disciples the great commission. And there he would say... Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. This is the way that the script was meant to unfold. So that Paul would say it succinctly in Romans 1.16 when he said, I am not ashamed of this gospel about Jesus. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. So Jesus' response that sounds cold, distant, and even cruel 
is consistent with the way the mission of God was intended and promised to unfold in humanity. And this is an important theological and missiological point that I'm sure the disciples were meant to get in this moment. And Jesus usually, again, stuck to the script. Over and over we see him saying in the Gospels, my hour has not yet come. Right, They'd want him to do something, show you that you're the king or do this miracle or do this thing. My hour has not yet come. Even when it came to them taking him and crucifying, the hour has not yet come until it came. Jesus almost always stuck to the script unless his mama asked him to do something. His mom said, listen, they're out of wine at this wedding. We want you to make some wine. Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. Just make the wine, Jesus. He makes the wine. <laughs> Obeying your mom is always a script. And his response represents that. Sticking to the script, that is. And it's not actually cold, distant, or necessarily cruel. It's exactly the way that God had planned his mission to unfold. But this woman is not just any woman. This woman is a persistent woman. And this woman presses the issue. Now she moves in close to Jesus. And we're told in verse 25 that she gets down on her knees and she begs and says, Lord, help me. Now she's begging at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 26, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, that does seem cold and cruel. And we feel uncomfortable with that response. We feel surprised that Jesus would respond in that way with those words to this woman in this moment of need. And we suppose that we know enough about Jesus when we hear that statement to flinch a little bit. Maybe we do. But we don't know much about this woman. Let me say something hard. What if she, like we often have, brought this all on herself? She was a Canaanite. She was from Tyre and Sidon. She was from the stronghold of Yahweh rejecting idol-worshiping, child-sacrificing Baalism. What if she was just a picture of the people that Joshua was supposed to so readily handle? What if she, in her idolatry and her rejection of the one true God, and in her own sin, brought this upon herself and her family? Will not God judge sin? And justly so? What if she deserved it? And what if sin really does have consequences? Not just for us, but for our children, and our relationships, and so our families, and our communities. What if Galatians 6 7 is true? 
Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. In fact, I, I, I think that the woman knows she deserves it. Because she doesn't come to Jesus and say, as others did, Jesus, give me justice. She's not asking for justice. What is she asking for? Mercy. Her repeated, desperate cry is a cry for mercy. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus does have mercy on her, as we have come to expect him to do. But slow down for a minute. Don't just jump to the end of the story. Think for a moment. Mercy, by definition, is undeserved. That's what mercy means. Mercy is asking for something, getting for something, hoping for something that one does not deserve. Mercy, by definition, is undeserved. And if we presume upon mercy, then it ceases to be mercy. And I think that sometimes we live that way. Again, Galatians 6, 7, God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. But sometimes I think we miss mercy because we somehow view ourselves as deserving of kindness from God. And man, if there was anything in the Gospels that Jesus bristled at, it was the people who thought they were deserving of God's kindness. But other times we miss mercy simply because we are presuming on God's mercy. That is to say, we often have the mindset, I will go ahead and sin because, of course, God will have mercy on me. And in that, we have missed something of great value. We have perhaps become comfortable enough with the gospel, the wonderful good news that God is merciful and gracious to sinners and rebels, We have perhaps become so comfortable with the gospel that we have missed the concept of holiness. Because we presume upon mercy. And maybe we forget. Maybe this picture helps us remember that God hates sin. Sin has profound, destructive consequences like we see in the text. And honestly, it would not be wholly inappropriate for Jesus to be harsh about it. Have you read your Bible? God is often very harsh about sin. I don't think it's surprising that Jesus responded to the woman in this way. I think what is surprising is that Jesus has mercy on us at all ever. That's the surprise of the text is that Jesus does have mercy on us. And the teaching of the text is that none of us are deserving of mercy. Hence the word mercy. 
None of us are deserving, but God has mercy on us. And apart from the kindness and the mercy and the grace of God, we would always and forever find ourselves in the picture of the woman going unanswered at our cries and unwelcomed at the table of the Lord. Because aren't we all at the end of the day actually undeserving dogs? in light of the holiness of God and our sin? Isn't what is most surprising is the fact that God has mercy on us at all, ever? And he does so because of his love and his character and the glorious quality of who he is. And if we ever get a glimpse of God in his holiness, then we can only ever stand in awe of his mercy. And that keeps us in a place of rejoicing and in a place of gratitude and in a place of worship rather than presumption that leads to more sin. There is nothing in humanity's sin that obligated God to show us mercy. God chose to do so because of his own nature and his love, and his merciful, and his gracious nature. God has chosen to do that. So we stand in all of that, again, in that place, not presuming which leads to sin, but rejoicing, and with gratitude and worship that we have been shown mercy. I think that's part of the hard lesson of the text. I think that the boys, the disciples, were supposed to get that. But I also think that we know enough about Jesus to safely assume that the mercy we see here in Christ is more surprising than we probably realize. You know what we can't see when we read the Bible? We can't always see clearly emotion. You know, this is why texting and emails are so dangerous. This is why emojis are so helpful. Because <laughs> our words, if they stand alone, could sound, uh, they can be easily misconstrued and can be cold in and of by themselves. But if you put the little smiley face with the heart eyes in your text, then I know just what you mean. The Bible doesn't have emojis. But I think we know enough about Jesus to perhaps imagine What if it's not as cold as it sounds? What if, as the woman knelt at the feet of Jesus, when he said these words, he held her tear-stained face in his hands? What if the look in his eyes was one of faithfulness to the plan and the mission of God? but one of great compassion to the plight and the pain of the woman? And what if his tone was one of tenderness? And what if these words were said gently and beautifully to the woman? There's a hint here 
Jesus uses that word dog. But in the Greek language, it's in the diminutive, meaning little dog or puppy. Wasn't used as some feral, nasty old dog. It was domesticated puppies. What if Jesus, in being faithful to the mission of God and compassionate to the plight of the woman, in love held the woman's face and said to her in merciful, sovereign tones those words? It's not right to take the children's bread, toss it to the puppies. Even so, even if we imagine this interaction to be softened from what we first heard it to be, his statement is not actually about the woman. His statement is about the mission, the way it was meant to unfold. And it was about Israel and his God's covenant with them. And it's a parable or a metaphor for the way that God's mission unfolds. And in this imagery, he invokes the idea of the head of a household. The head of the household has a responsibility to the children in the house. In this metaphor, Yahweh, God, is the head of the household. And the children are Israel. And the head of the household has a responsibility in the children, to the children. And there's a clear order in the house, the metaphor tells us. Dogs, puppies, pets, they will be fed, but they are not fed at the expense of the children. Not the way that's supposed to work, hello. The puppies will be fed, but they are not fed at the expense of the children. The head of the household is going to get it right. Everyone, though, will be fed, including the puppies. But Jesus, as the head of the household, was sent to feed the children of the house, Israel, first. That is what would be expected of the Messiah and right according to God's mission. And then his followers would turn and take this good news of this compassionate, merciful, saving God to the whole Gentile world. And everyone would receive bread from God's table, the bread of his mercy in due time and in order. In due time and in order. So what Jesus was doing here was right and expected and consistent with what he had taught his disciples to this point. But it wasn't only his mom that was able to make Jesus veer from the script. It was the suffering of people. This mercy came early. This is early mercy. Because Jesus seems, if we can speak in these terms, unable to resist humility and faith. And this woman had humility and faith. She even had, I think, wit. I don't know if that holds any merit before God. 
But the fact that she turns that metaphor around so quickly on Jesus and says, even the dogs eat crumbs that fall from the master's table. That was witty. I don't know if that holds any merit before God, but she had wit. But I know what does hold merit is humility. And she exhibited humility and willingness to see herself as the undeserving Gentile. As a puppy. And to acknowledge Jesus as a master. She displayed true humility. The Bible says that God gives grace to the humble, but is opposed to the proud. Humility is irresistible before God. The sinner in Luke 18, who in juxtaposition to the Pharisee, pounded his own chest and said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And went home justified that day. Humility is irresistible toward God, to God, as is faith. And this woman had tremendous faith. When she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She also, this is why she's so witty. She used a diminutive there. She used the diminutive of the word crumb. So it's not just crumb, it's like crumble. The crumb of a crumb. Jesus, even the crumb of a crumb that come from your table are able to heal my daughter. Even the smallest bread of mercy that comes forth from your table, Jesus, is more than enough to meet my deep need. She had great faith. Jesus says to her, woman, your faith is great. Your request has been granted. And in that is great mercy. Early mercy had come to this woman. And the mercy that was received would have tasted to her This crumble would have tasted to her for the rest of her life like a banquet. Has your child ever suffered? Would you not do anything to end the suffering of your child? And for her to go home and see her tormented daughter healed and restored and set free and well would have been to her heart for all of her days a banqueting table. And I doubt that she had the grammar of Israel. But if she had the grammar of Israel, she would have said what the psalmist said in Psalm 23. You, God, prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Her cup was overflowing at the mercy of God. She had been undeservedly brought to the table of God's mercy. Later on, Jesus would say to his disciples, and just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table In my kingdom, there is a merciful invite. And that invite has been extended to us. 
because God loves us, because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of God's great mercy, we have been invited to the banqueting table of God. And what faith says is that even a crumb of a crumb from your love and your provision, God, is enough to meet my deepest needs. That's what faith says. That's why faith is so important. And humility says, I don't deserve this, God, but if your crumbs of mercy are coming my way, I will receive them. And rather than presuming upon them, which will only lead to sin, I will rejoice in them, be thankful for them, and worship you for them. And that's the Christian life. Fellowship with mercy, fellowship with Jesus, excuse me, based on mercy. Rejoicing and worshiping. Because in reality, his mercy is always early. What does the Bible say? Your mercies are new each morning. God's mercy is always early. Right when we need it. So today, on this Palm Sunday, I invite you to come to the Lord's table. This is where we celebrate that mercy. That table was prepared for us. This is where we come feast on the crumbs that are here that represent Christ's body broken for us. And the juice that is here that represents his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins of many. And no matter how many your sins, no matter how great your need, no matter how undeserving you are, the banqueting table has been set for you, the table of God's mercy. And so put all of your hope, put all of your faith, humble yourself before Jesus and the truth of what he has done on the cross for you and cry to him for mercy. Maybe you need like the woman to have some persistence. Her persistence paid off. She kept coming to Jesus and she fell at his feet and said, Jesus, Lord, help me. God hears that prayer and he loves you. Put all of your hope all of your faith in him today as we celebrate the great mercy through the cross. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful mercy that's been brought to us. Help us, Lord, to receive this mercy and this grace. Lord, forgive us where we are resistant to it. and that we think we're deserving somehow or we've underestimated our own sin. Lovingly open our eyes to our great need for forgiveness. And help us, Lord, where in our brokenness, our hearts have gone cold and we think, well, God isn't helping me. Teach us to turn our eyes upon you. Teach us to be like Israel who said, we we don't know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you. God, you promise it. When we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. And that your mercy toward us is new this morning. May we experience your mercy. May we rejoice in our standing before you, which is one of grace. Would you restore unto us great joy in the love that we have experienced by being at your table.